0: Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from the Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is a re-release of an episode originally produced for the 2022 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it! In this episode, guest interviewer and rancher Tristan Banwell speaks with rancher Steve Kenyon about winter grazing strategies for the herd. Tristan is co-owner of Spray Creek Ranch in Lillooet, BC. Steve is a grazing expert and co-owner of Greener Pastures Ranching in Busby, Alberta. Plant growers take note. This is clearly one for the animal farmers, but Steve's ideas on building what he calls good soil armor will be of interest to any farmer interested in improving their soil health, so stay with us here. Alright, hope you enjoy the episode. Talk to you at the end.
1: Today, we'll be hearing from Steve Kenyon of Greener Pastures Ranching. Steve runs a custom cattle grazing operation and raises hogs near Busby, Alberta. He's also an author, speaker, and shares his knowledge with farmers and ranchers through the Canadian Cattleman, Stockman Grass Farmer, and other publications, as well as speaking engagements, schools, and seminars across North America. Steve, thanks so much for speaking with me.
2: Not a problem. Thanks, Tristan, for having me here. I'm uh, excited to hear what you have to throw at me today.
1: Great, so we're over here, uh, our operation is Spray Creek Ranch here in BC, uh, we're, we're uh, rotationally grazing cattle. Uh, we also raise um, pigs and poultry. Uh, we're pr- primarily gonna be talking about uh, grazing beef cattle, but I think some of the concepts are applicable to uh, small ruminants and, and even pigs and poultry to some extent. So maybe first you could just uh, expand on my introduction a little bit and tell us what you're doing over there.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um... You hit her pretty well, bang on. Um, we do mostly uh, custom cattle grazing operation. We run, uh, I think last summer we had just over fourteen hundred head. We run about thirty five hundred acres. A lot of bush out in our part of the world, so half of our land is usually um, bushland. And uh, we do we have uh, a small pig or pasture pork operation. Um, we have done chickens. We've we've got some sheep here right now. but Actually, uh, um, we don't own them, but uh, we're they're on our land, put it that way, mm-hmm. and uh, we've had goats in the past and different small animals as well. So um, the most of the concepts that I deal with in my operation, it it is interchangeable between different species, right? Uh, it, it they're concepts, and we change them and adapt them to our environment to the situation we're in.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I'm assuming much like us over here. I mean, I'm uh, we we joke about how you can do the zoom interview in your underpants. I am. Uh, I'm here in my long john so we're well into winter uh, here when we're speaking and wintery wintry or still over where you are and most cattle producers in Canada are, are feeding in one form or another right now and could you talk about winter feeding costs and why a producer might want to have a close look at their winter feeding program
2: yeah you bet um the one thing that I'd like to uh, emphasize about the winter feeding costs uh it's more the yardage costs now Right now in our area, the price of feed is through the roof. So that is a major obstacle that people have to get over. But a lot of times, you know, on, on most normal years, um, people don't account for the yardage cost, mm-hmm. uh, the, the actual cost of feeding, the, the labor and the equipment cost. Now, when I uh, learned how to do all this, these uh, numbers in, in college, they talked about having variable costs and fixed costs. So in that, in that description, a variable cost would be the price of your feed. Because okay, it changes and a fixed cost would be all of your assets your, you know that, that's where the yardage came into it. And that bothered me because I, I, I looked at it differently. That price of hay changes, right It changes all the time a lot yeah but, but I can't control it. okay So right I, I can't dictate that. a year to year a year like this, the drought goes up, the, the price of hay goes through the roof, right? I can't control that. That's mm-hmm. market value. So to me, that's a fixed cost. Right. It just, it just didn't make sense to me. Right. And, uh, right. all of those costs that go into yardage. So your labor and equipment costs, right. The, the cost of your tractor and the depreciation and, and all those different things, they called those a fixed cost, but I have the ability to change that mm-hmm. right on my farm. I can change that. I can change the way I feed and make that cost, which they call the fixed cost. I can make it lower. Um, so it's, it's just a, a, a perspective. It's a way you look at things. Um, and a lot of people don't even consider their labor and equipment costs. And that in some cases is, you know, can be the higher cost. Um, right. I've, so I've been able to feed cheaper than what the cost of feeding is.
1: Right. So, when- so yardage, you're talking, uh, this is uh, the trucking the hay from place to place, getting in your tractor, touching every time you touch that hay, unloading it, it includes all those costs as well as putting it out to cows. So if you're driving out the kind of conventional way, throwing 10 bales out in ring feeders every day on a sacrifice pasture or something like that, what, what all is included in that yardage cost you're talking about?
2: Yeah, uh, every farm is different, right? Uh, some farms that might be the, in the, the trucking of the hay in might be in the cost of hay because you bought it delivered. Mm -hmm. Or if you bought it in the field, well, now you have to go get it. So is that in the cost of the hay or is it in your yardage? So it depends where you put that. But Mm -hmm. still, those are costs we have to understand and be able to calculate them out. Just as a quick example, the average Alberta yardage rate, according to the government statistics, over the last quite a few years, now it's varied a little bit every time they do it, but it's around 70 cents per head per day. Mm -hmm. So it it costs you 70 cents to feed uh, one animal for a day uh, on average. Now, if you've got a lot bigger herd, right, if you had 500 head, you're out there feeding your labor and equipment costs divide out better. Mm -hmm. If you've got a very small herd and you drive your tractor out there to put one bale out, well, you know, those costs end up going uh, quite a bit higher because it doesn't divide out as well. So the the economies of scale do work into that, but the average across Alberta has been around 70 cents okay um there's been years where on my farm i do a quick yardage calculation Now i'm not going to say it's the perfect one um but to get it get my numbers close and and be be able to do it quickly uh, i've been under 10 cents per head per day yardage okay that's a big difference compared to what the average is right
1: right okay so so before we even get to the time when we actually have to be moving a bale of hay or or starting a a tractor or anything like that we can look at extending our our grazing season and first i want to talk about stockpile grazing so at our ranch when we're having this conversation in early january we're transitioning to bale grazing but we still have about 20 acres of stockpiled perennial forage in front of us and in the winter of course we do have to make some changes compared to summer grazing since the ground's frozen and we have limited winter watering sites around the farm but we've made stockpiling forage a summer grazing priority, and we've learned to graze longer each year. So can you talk a little bit about how grazers can set themselves up to graze in the winter and reduce the need for feeding hay in the first place?
2: Yes, you bet. Now we have a very short growing season in Canada, right? It's just the nature of where we are. And it is difficult. I I don't think you will ever get to grazing stockpiled grass, you know, all year long, like mm-hmm. all winter long, just because we have about a four month growing season and we have a eight month dormant season. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are some tricks to extend that quite a bit um, just by going through your rotation and managing it and, and, and stockpiling, you'll get a, uh, you know, with good grazing management, you'll get a couple more months out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you utilize some other tools, like uh, let's say a disposable herd, um, then you might get a little bit longer. Um, if you can get some, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some annuals in there to get some swath grazing for the later in the winter. Um, that can get you a little bit longer too. I mean, I have grazed year round by, by utilizing those tools, mm-hmm. um, just doing stockpiled grass. Yeah. It's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's just that we have such a, a short growing season in, in our environment mm-hmm. now, the, uh, I'm just going to exp- explain those a little bit more. Uh, the dis- disposable herd is a, a, a very handy tool. Um, it can vary a lot. But let let me give you one example. So let's say you had 100 cows. um, And you're grazing all of your land. If you were to, you know, drop your numbers or uh, cull hard on a, you know, on on a tough year, and you, you know, cut your herd in half, then you brought in a summer disposable herd to to balance that off, whether it be custom grazing, maybe it's your own calves you keep over Mm -hmm. and and graze them for the summer. But to have that larger or maybe two herds grazing when the the flush is, you know, that spring flush is going and, and maybe even into the later summer and knock a bunch of that grass down and then get the regrowth coming. And then we can get rid of the disposable herd, right? We mm-hmm. can sell them, we can send them back, whatever the, the situation is. And now your smaller herd has all the land now to keep grazing around for the rest of the season. So basically it's like having two different pastures and then all of a sudden your herd gets to graze the second cutting of the, the other pasture as well.
1: Right. It's um, a way to balance that you're, you're balancing your your forage growth curve and your forage availability with your actual stocking rate on the place.
2: Yeah. And then you can drop your stocking rate by getting rid of the disposable herd. Mm-hmm. Now I, I've done that with, bring you know, had yearlings in um, a lot of times the yearling guys, or, or if they're, you know, wanting to feed stalkers, they want to get them back in the feedlot by September anyway. Mm -hmm. So if I tell them, well, maybe in August, you can take these guys home middle of August or end of August, that gives me quite a bit of extra grass for my main herd or my, my breeding herd to uh, graze into, into the fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've actually talked to a neighbor one time. Um, they did continuous grazing, right. They were next door neighbors to me. um, they saw what I did, and I saw what they did, but we can still get along. Right, <laughs> right. Not, not a problem. But I offered to them because they start grazing really early in the spring, like as soon as there's a blade of grass out there, they turn their animals out. Um, so all of April, basically, their herd was out on that quarter, and and guess what it looked like, right? It was right. grazed right to nothing. Mm-hmm. So I actually told them, um, you can. I had, I believe, I had five quarters in that cell on that particular year. I went to him and I said, I will uh, let you graze this one quarter for the month of June. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, you know, basically opening a gate between our two our, our, on our fence line. And I said, I'll give you that, that quarter for the month of June, but I, I will manage them. Right. Because I think I had like seven or eight paddocks on that quarter. Right. So he was excited because that gave his over, you know, overgrazed, over abused field uh, the rest the entire month of June. And I got to come in and knock down that excess growth while my herd stayed on the other quarters and moved around. And then I got that nice regrowth after for, you know, in July and August, and I ended up having quite a bit of extra grass uh, in September and October that year.
1: Nice without buying any more animals or or having to go to the auction and try to deal with health issues or anything like that, you were able to just do it right across the fence line.
2: Yeah. And, and I, he, I did charge him for it, but I gave him a a heck of a deal compared to what my custom grazing rates would be. Um, And he got some extra grass out of it. You know, his, I think the term he used, his land got to freshen, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, it did some benefit to his in his style of management as well, right? So it was a win-win for both sides. Right. Um, but it's just another form of using that disposable herd. Is is there a way you can, you know, work that into your system somehow? If if so, great.
1: Right. Another example, I think, for the organic sector over here that I've heard of would be custom grazing dairy heifers. A lot of the dairies are on limited land base in, in higher land price areas, and they'd love to get their heifers out of there for a season, something like that. So that might be an opportunity to look into.
2: Yeah, you bet. Anything anything that can come in. and It, it also saves you in the, in the drought, mm-hmm. right? If, if you've got a drought situation hitting, you're not overstocked. You're not stuck with your herd of cows
1: you can move um, them out
2: yeah yeah all of a sudden boy you know we're in a drought i'm gonna i'm gonna kick those the disposable herd out even even earlier and mm-hmm. if your own animals well you sell them early um maybe the markets aren't quite there yet but if we're looking at the you know gross margins on two different profit centers maybe one doesn't make the profit you wanted to but it was a tool to to give the other profit center uh you know less cost Involved, which means their margins going to get better. So you can balance out two different profit centers by by looking at the numbers.
1: Okay. So in terms of the actual nitty gritty of getting out there and grazing in the winter time, I mean, I, I think that um, we see all different methods that work for people. We continue using our our geared reels and um, use single wire electric cross fencing and. Particularly if we get some snow, we tend to start shrinking those paddocks down so that the cows uh, can graze through that snow before they trample it all down. And unlike in the summertime when we, we would need a back fence to prevent cattle from regrazing a previous paddock, in, in the wintertime we typically start at a winter watering site and we move them gradually away from that without setting up a back fence. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the conditions that people do manage to graze through, um, and, and what kind of could shut that down. And then if there's a, any other specific tips and tricks you've seen work really well for getting that stockpile off.
2: Yeah, no, you described it, uh, pretty well. Um, the, the biggest issue that most producers have in, in the wintertime, especially once you get snow is actually keeping the power in your fence mm-hmm. um, because that snow acts as an insulator. So, um, if we're strip grazing down a piece, yeah, for sure. Um, if you make the paddocks a little bit smaller, then they, they, they don't stomp down as much. Um, in, in my neck of the words, from most of my experience, um, we actually go to swath grazing by the time our snow gets to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just because that's the, the nature of, of my business. Um, and then it doesn't matter quite so much because once they find a swath, you know, they can pack down all the other stuff, but once they find a swath, they, they kind of stick to it and, and keep going through it. So um, the the longer your graze period, the the less efficiency you get out of it as well, right? You mm-hmm. might get more days. If I was to move every every day, you know, in stockpile grass or in a swath grazing situation, I might get 30% more out of my entire field for the season. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll, we'll just, by the end, we'll get more days or we'll get uh, uh, more, uh, you know, animal days out of the whole system. If I was to move to every three days, well, we're going to lose some, we're not going to be quite as efficient. They're going to you know eat all the good stuff on day one. And then, you know, day two is kind of medium day three, they're scrounging and, and cleaning up. Mm-hmm. So we're not quite as Uh, Efficient that way. However, you've got to balance out the economics behind it. What's your labor cost? Right. You know, in in some cases, it's actually cheaper for me to do the three day uh, because of the distance driving down there or something. Right. Uh, uh, We've got to weigh out the efficiency of of getting all that stockpiled grass or all that swath grazing versus the amount of labor and equipment we're putting into it. Mm -hmm. So I've seen a lot of people who, you know, strip graze all winter long. But if you started throwing your labor and equipment costs in there, you're, you're losing money. Right. So, if you've
1: got to travel to get to the farm, or if the strips that you have to do, you're, you're putting out a lot of fence when the ground's frozen, it can be more time consuming, not to mention uh, when the wind's whipping across and drifting up and everything like that, uh, cutting out a few of those moves, it might balance it out. And, and whatever you're wasting um, in terms of utilization, you're leaving there on the field anyhow.
2: Yeah, for sure. There's, the problem is I can't say one way is better than the other because, you know, every situation is different so you've got to take the farms context into into consideration.
1: Right. So before, I'd like to ask you a bit more about the, the uh, just what it looks like for you when you're swath grazing when you cut in that but uh, I wanted to mention first a trick that we have found useful it's uh, 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 people struggle with how to deal with it when the ground's frozen. <clears throat> and we have pretty rocky ground anyway here but we've tended to Uh, Well, first, I mean, we found that earlier in swap in uh, stockpile grazing, and especially if there's some snow, the ground underneath in the pasture, it'll stay so that the frost isn't very deep in it for a little while into the winter. So there's a period of time we can continue to just step in those posts. But once it does freeze up too hard, we use a masonry bit on a battery powered uh, masonry like SDS drill, and you can get the bits pretty long and the drill is pretty long. So we can actually just walk along without really even bending down and we just drill in a hole and drop in a single spike post, and that's worked pretty well for us. Have you found any other uh, other tips and tricks for moving those kind of fences in the winter?
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I've used the the drill and masonry bit before as well. Um, I found that the the drill got heavy, <laughs> and and you got to have the spare battery because when it dies and you're halfway out there, it's it's kind of frustrating. Um, but uh, yeah, I have done that. The, in the, I don't know. I'm going to say the last 15 years, my my go-to that I've always uh, been my my most successful for that. It's actually a specialized post. Um, I shouldn't say specialized. It's just one company's post. And now I actually think they're hard to hard to get. I, I don't know if they were bought out by somebody or they're not selling them anymore. But uh, it's a, a company that was called uh, Performance Fence International. It's uh, PFI, um, and they they have a special step-in post. I mean, it's not all that different than all the other ones, but just the tip is made a little bit different. And on the bottom, on the foot peg, there's a little bit of a ledge that I can tap with a hammer. Okay. And, and, uh, I've been using them for about 15 years now. They're, they're so simple and so easy with frozen ground. Um, so basically I just, you can just tap them into the ground. There's that little ledge. You can just carry a hammer, right? Instead of carrying a drill, you just got a mm-hmm. hammer in your hand. You just tap them into the, into the frozen ground. And the, the tip is kind of pointed, but it's kind of almost like a diamond shape. Okay. Um, get them into the ground about a half an inch they stand really nice you can actually get additional clips for these as well so you can have multiple wires if you want Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's just a standard pigtail it's got a blue top on it i think it's the only one i've seen with a blue top and to get it out you just grab the top and you kick the bottom of the h a little bit and twist it Mm -hmm. and because of the shape of that point at the bottom it just pops right out of the frozen ground right? It's Great. a little bit wider the way it is. So, uh, I've been using that for, for years and it's my go-to.
1: So now not knowing where you can get them now, potentially you're trying to make sure you keep those things in good shape.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're pretty sturdy too. Like I've had some for 20 years and I mean, they're rusty, they, but they still work. Uh, nice. I'm very impressed at how long they've lasted. So the last company that I saw that was selling them was, uh, was uh, systems equine. Okay. And, and I don't know my dealer in, in my local dealer here now said he can't find them anymore. He can't order them in. So I don't know where they went or if somebody bought them out or something, but if you can find that PFI fence post, that's the, that's the one I use.
1: That's the ticket. Okay. And that's, it sounds like if, if it's hard to find now, then maybe an opportunity for one of these other companies to pick up something that works for the northerners. So yeah, you bet. So yeah, you bet. So we're, we're here mostly stockpiling um, anywhere where the weather is is warming up a lot in the wintertime and uh, above freezing and cooling back down, we could have challenges with swath grazing and I'd like to hear about, a little bit about how it works in of course of across BC we have other climates that are more similar to yours. Uh, how does that look so uh, which what kind of period of the year are you are you cutting that down and um, that's, uh, yeah, just give, give us a bit of a rundown on that. How to cut, we're essentially cutting the rake and the baler out of the operation and making the cows do the baling up themselves, essentially.
2: Yes, you bet. The advantage we have over here in uh, Alberta is that we live in a deep freeze all winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Our ground freezes, very seldom do we get mud and, you know, thawing temperatures in the wintertime. Uh, we get about two to three weeks in the springtime where we have to be very careful of that because that spring frost is coming out it's you know frost heaving and freezing at night and there we've got to be careful but we're lucky that we you know get minus 40 for most of the winter (laughs) (laughs) lucky Um, lucky ducks yeah lucky us yeah we're just coming out of a deep freeze right now it's supposed to warm up in the next couple days but um so I get that question lots. Okay, we, we have, you know, we have wet winters, you know, it, it can be muddy here. How do we do it? We, you know, swath grazing won't work here. So my question is how many weeks, how many months out of a year is your ground frozen mm-hmm. on average, right? Can you, is it a month on and off, right? You get a month, you know, two weeks of frozen ground now and you get, then you get two weeks of warm and then you get another couple of weeks of frozen I mean, just, it's an estimate, right? I got to do the same thing here. I'm estimating all the time. Right. So if you've got a winter feeding spot that you're, you know, that's your sacrifice area, just have it as a backup. Okay. Mm -hmm. While the ground's frozen, have your animals out swath grazing. If it starts to, to, you know, warm up and all of a sudden you got some mud out there, pull them out and get them in the other spot, get them on Mm -hmm. the hard ground on the, Mm -hmm. wherever that sacrifice is. Uh, And then wait until it freezes again and go back the problem most people have is they think if they're going to do something, they got to do it all the way.
1: Right.
2: You don't, you can do it part-time, right. Plan for a month of swath grazing and, and move on. Mm-hmm. Our risk out here is our swath grazing, um, deep snow, frozen, you know, freezing rain, um, you know, ice layers, wind drifts that they can't get through. Right. We've, we've got those risks as well when we can't, it's just a different type of risk. Mm-hmm. So in my environment for my safety, uh, I only want to, swath graze until, you know, maybe January sometime, because I've never had a swath grazing wreck before January, Mm -hmm. right? It just, you know, December is usually nice and January might get cold, but we don't have that, those really wintry, you know, seldom those freezing rains and stuff that we can't get through. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to get a wreck, it's been February, March, Mm -hmm. right? The winter's been dragging on, the snow's getting deeper and all of a sudden you get a warm spell and then you get frozen and then you get a bunch of rain or, you know, it's just a risk factor. So, right. what's the risk factor in your area? So, if I could do it perfect every year, I would like to, you know, stockpile some grass, you know, graze that until maybe November, December, uh, move on to some swath grazing, maybe do that for a month or two, right? Get into January, maybe even into February, and then get on bale grazing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then bale graze for the rest of the winter. Because my bale grazing, I've never had a wreck, right? Snow has never stopped me from bale grazing. Um, uh, I, the, I guess the only wreck I would have with bale grazing would be if it warms up and we get mud. Right. Uh, and you know, it's a worse, it's a worse wreck if you're swath grazing when you get that mud compared sure. to bale grazing on some solid pasture. So a few years ago, we did have like three spring breakups. It was just, it was a weird yeah. year. You know, it, we, everything melted off really early in the, in the spring. And we went through our two or three week muddy period when springs break up. And then all of a sudden we just got a dumping of snow. Mm. and then it melted again right after and then we're like oh okay uh, there's a, there, there's another there's a month or, or a month and a half of mud and then we got a big rainstorm and we had another month of mud right it was just like continually so i i've, I've been through that um but it's all about risks right nature is always going to have the final say no matter what it is so mm-hmm. um, we just have to plan for it and have a place to go a sacrifice paddock we you know to be able to get around those
1: to pull them off and I've made that mistake I've I've um even with bale grazing I think it's still uh good to have somewhere you can pull them off I've bale grazed uh too late into the spring when we had an early breakup and did some damage to that perennial pasture that I was bale grazing on uh that I you know I was too committed to the bale grazing in retrospect I wish I just pulled them off and and just a week would have done it to where I wouldn't have had that soft ground and and wrecked those bale ring like the areas the rings around each of the bales there So yeah,
2: one of the, one of the tricks I do for that, for that spring breakup time for me is we've got Hills Mm -hmm. and, you know, naturally in the spring, the South side of the Hills are going to melt off first and the North sides are going to keep, you know, have snow longer because the sun's not on them. Mm -hmm. So I will plan, you know, a couple areas, one where there's a South facing bank and one where there's a North facing bank. So when that South facing bank is melting off and it's wet and muddy, well, we're grazing over on the north part, mm-hmm. and then once we get past that, and the north part starts to melt and gets wet and muddy. Well, guess what? the The south slope is now dry by now because right. it's you know it it melted off a while. So then we'll start feeding out there, right? Um, and and keep some flexibility in it too, right? I mean, there's times when uh, when that ground is freezing and thawing in the spring, where I know, boy, we're not going to get for you know the ground's not going to freeze at night. So I'm going to put out a bunch of bales so I don't have to, you know, run my truck for a while at all. Um, uh, Before that, you know, on that last morning when we've got some frost, I'll put out extra feed so that we're not going to be driving through that mud for the next week or or two weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of planning and watching the weather.
1: Right. And it's that flexibility in the system is what makes all that kind of stuff possible. Those are some great tips. So in the in the swath grazing, uh, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation. You kind of mentioned annual forages and, st- and uh, swath grazing, kind of in the in the same sentence. Could you let us know what that kind of uh, getting annual forages into extending the grazing season can look like in our part of the world?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of talk now about cover crops, and I most of my work with with uh, cropping land is done with in association with um, neighbors, right? Grain mm-hmm. farmers that have land. Um, I've worked with numerous different farmers over the years some guys actually seed a full crop for me some it's just the residues or maybe the wrecked you know if they have a, a crop uh, disaster they'll instead of combine in it they call me and I come in and graze it so mm-hmm. um, but you you definitely can plant some cover crops or some annuals and you know plan them for swath grazing uh, it's just a matter of you know what's what's your situation what's your context how close is it is it is it uh going to work into it Mm -hmm. the big risk that i've found going on to grain land i mean it's usually uh i'm gonna i'm careful how i say this it's usually not in the most uh healthiest state Mm -hmm. okay um it it can't handle the compaction if if the cattle go out there in the middle of the summer and all of a sudden you get a big rainstorm they're going to punch it out Mm -hmm. whereas land that is in in you know very very healthy situation good root systems right our 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 well-managed perennial pastures they can easily withstand that that moisture because we've got that soil armor on top Mm -hmm. whereas most of the grain lands don't so that's been my big risk if I take over a piece of property and it was grain land and I'm trying to convert it into into pasture or we're just trying to graze a cover crop uh, or or, or a swath grazing field if it gets muddy and wet we punch out the grain field and mm-hmm. now my grain, grain farmer is mad at me. Right. So I've gotten away with this a few times because it's a smaller piece of grain land that's touching one of my pastures. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I, if I have that situation where I've got a, if it's wet, I have a place to put the animals, right? I mean, the one example is we had 1,100 acres of pasture. I added 60 acres of grain land that I put down into a cover crop. Right. Well, in my rotation during the summer, I've got lots of leeway right? If, if it's raining, I don't have to go on that land. I got lots of pasture that I can be grazing. Then when we get a nice little, you know, a dry period where it's not, uh, it's not going to be muddy out there, I can easily go out and graze through the 60 acres and get on and off of it with, without any rain. Um, but another piece of land I took over, we took over a couple hundred acres of grain land. That's all we had. Mm-hmm. So we seeded it down and we took the animals over there and there was, when it started to rain, there was no place to go. Right. Right. And it rained and it was the wettest year we've had in years. So I I did the high ground first, and then I ran out of high ground. And now all I got left is low, low ground and the the ground wasn't in very good shape. Um, the water was not infiltrating. It was just sitting on top because you picture the grain land. It's only ever had tillage, you know, in root systems, the top six inches for 30 years, right? There's no infiltration. Right. Um, we were grazing through 11 inches of water. Wow. Like like, it, like I had nowhere to go. So we did some damage. We punched it out. Um, it's going to take a few years to fix that. And that was a learning thing for me. It's like, okay, if I'm taking over new grain land and I've got nowhere to go, you know what that first year, maybe two years, that should have been a swath grazing field, mm-hmm. right? Get the, get the perennial going underneath it, but wait and swath graze it and graze it when the ground is frozen mm-hmm. for those first couple of years to let it heal. And then, you know, two years later, I can go over there if it's that wet, number one, the water is going to infiltrate away, right? We've got the root systems down there. We've opened up some of that in, in our environment. It's a clay base. We've opened up some of that clay and allowed the water to soak in. We're not getting 11 inches of water, standing water on that land anymore, right? Cause mm-hmm. we've, we've fixed it, but right. we need a place to go Yeah, is, is my, that's the scary part. You got to have a plan.
1: Right. you got to have that flexibility <clears throat> that we're talking about in the winter situation as well. So those are that's some great examples you've given us. So yeah. now, now we've, we've worked our way through our stockpile, our swath grazing, and, we, and we've gotten through all of that. It's time for hay. The snow's too deep or it's crusted over or you just write out a stockpile. Um, when we started here, feeding hay meant uh, starting the tractor up every few days throwing round bales and feeder rings on a sacrifice pasture for six months. And, and uh, I mean, right, right when we got here, and that's pretty typical I'd say too. And when we got here, it just struck me as a bit absurd, you know, that you're harvesting off of this one field all, all season and then you're feeding on this other season or on this other field for the other season. And then they were even scraping up that manure and, and uh, letting people take it away. So it was a weird uh, movement of nutrients didn't make sense to me. Um, now, now we've gotten into bale grazing and the hay, fury, hay feeding period has been cut way down. Um, so why don't you tell us what bale grazing looks like, um, how you like to manage it in terms of if you're, if you're purchasing in feed and, and how to minimize handling of those bales and just some of the logistics of, of how to move the cattle through a bale grazing situation.
2: Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a big topic. Mm -hmm. Um, bale grazing to me is just a form of feeding, but you're using a grazing mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the big part of it for me is what, like we talked about at the beginning, is just lowering your yardage cost, right? That labor and equipment cost that goes into feeding, like you said, starting that tractor every day um, um, goes back to that yardage, that average of 70 cents when I can get my bale grazing down to under 10 cents. Mm -hmm. So uh, the main reason why I do that is to reduce my labor. When I I actually first started bale grazing, um, I saw some uh, crazy lunatic guy doing that back home and thought, wow, that's kind of weird. <laughs> and I moved up to the Edmonton area and I went out and I got a job and I was working, driving truck uh, six days a week, uh, late hours. Right, we, were, we were putting in way too many hours, like 16 to 20 hours a day. And uh, when do you feed cows? Mm-hmm. Right, when when, when yeah. do you feed cows? So I ended up going, well, I only have one day a week off. I need to be able to feed on that one day. Mm -hmm. So I would, I I had all my summer grazing pastures already figured out and I went out and I would put a day's worth of feed in a paddock, right? I'd unroll a bale in this one and I'd unroll a bale in that one. And uh, all on Sunday, I would put all the feed out for a week. And then for the, during the week, um, we just had to open a gate once a day. Mm -hmm. So I figured out how to get my, all my labor done on that one day And then I, then I started going, well, what if I put out two or three days worth of feed in there? And then I could just leave the bales. I don't have to unroll them. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that works. So like we, we faded into it and, and that worked even better. Well, now I only had to, you know, I could do it once and I, I could uh, feed for a month that way. And then I only have to open gates and now I got three. Days off a month now. Right. <laughs> right? So it was a big benefit. And then I got to the point where I quit my off-farm job. Right. And because I was home full time, because mm-hmm. um, the farm was growing. And I'm like, well, now I can go back to feeding every day. That was insanity. <laughs> Why would I? Now I've got more time. Right. So I, I kept doing it and then I expanded it. And then, you know, I got to the point where we're we're putting out an entire winter's where the feed, you know, in the fall ahead of time. Mm-hmm and and it just made sense Right. There's no there's, you know, no sane reason why I would would have gone, gone back to feeding after that. But it no, was, so I, 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 did I wanted it to out pick,
1: of... on, pick up one thing you said there for a second. So when you were rolling out that one bale and then when you went to a few days worth, you're talking because uh, you need an, if you're putting out the bales, you still got to have enough. It's like feeder space, basically. You got to still have enough room that the cows aren't fighting and battling around too few bales. Is that what you mean by being able to switch to if you put a, a, a three days worth out?
2: Yeah, they need enough bunk space, is mm-hmm. how I would term it. Right. Um, if you're only putting one day's worth out, you have to unroll it so everybody has bunk space. Um, mm-hmm. If you're just going to put one day's worth of feed out uh, and leave the bale solid, well, half the animals can't even get to the bale. So mm-hmm. all the boss cows are going to do really well and, and overeat, and then the, the stragglers are going to get like nothing. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, So <laughs> then a minimum would be about three days, I think, so that everybody has bunk space.
1: Okay. And, and it not only, I mean, it it frees up those days. Um, but when I think about not having to start the tractor, you know, it's one is, I mean, the days when it's just miserable out there, you know, it minimizes the amount of, of stress and challenge. And then everybody knows, especially we're just coming out of a cold snap. We're all dealing with whatever equipment issues and things things are only breaking when you're using them and if the tractor breaks down or you don't have a backup or then you got to have a backup it just creates a ton of stress um, if your whole feeding situation is relying on a piece of machinery and a quick quick story that I noticed once we started uh bale grazing well then we were able to go away you know conferences are during the winter feeding season we like to go to conferences and meet with our peers and talk about this stuff and once we started bale grazing, we're comfortable with it. We took off and we left a teenager in charge of feeding the cattle. You know, all they had to do, we set out a bunch of break fences and we basically were able to have our, our 14 year old neighbor farm girl come by and take down a fence once every few days. And, and it freed us up to actually be right off the farm and only worry about the waterer.
2: Yeah, for sure. My, uh, I, I do a lot of seminars and, and conferences in the wintertime and my absolute favorite question that I get asked and I get asked quite often is well, who's taking care of your cattle while you're away? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: And my answer instantly always is, I am.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> took care. Of, I, took care of it in the fall. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I I gave them a week's worth of feed when I left, and they're you know chances are they're licking snow, mm-hmm. um, and we're good.
1: Right. I'm
2: I'm here. I'm taking care of them. That's I'm, a
1: it's a good feeling. It really feels yeah. like it reduces the 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 risk of of one thing going wrong and and really causing you a lot of stress. So the. You you talked a bit about a sort of a set paddock system where you're able to go around. It sounds like there's permanent fencing. You could take down gates, and then when you're putting out a lot more, you're probably utilizing portable fencing, or or a lot of people would be. So how does that look? Um, are you are you using the bales? Are you using fiberglass? Like, let's talk a little bit about the actual infrastructure to to move the cattle through the bales.
2: Okay. Well, there's numerous ways to set up bale grazing, and and none of them are right and none of them are wrong. It depends mm-hmm. on your situation. So. The, the method that you're describing would be to put all your bales out across a field in kind of a checkerboard pattern mm-hmm. and then just strip graze a, a couple of poly fences or, or uh, temporary fences down the bales, right? Mm-hmm. Just giving giving them another row or maybe another two rows of bales every couple of days or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I've done that quite quite often. Um, if the bales are coming in and get them all set up, um, it saves you so much time for setting them up if you're not fighting with snow and cold weather. Yeah. Um, frozen twines and all sorts of stuff. Now that's a big, big advantage to that. Now it is very boring in the fall to go around and pull twine off a thousand bales. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a long week, but it's, (laughs) uh, I just keep telling myself it's better than pulling twine in the winter. It's It's so much easier. (laughs) Um, The other way that I do it actually a kind of a favorite way. It's probably my lowest yardage is if I buy hay from a local farmer, like a neighbor, um, instead of hiring a, a semi to haul those bales in, I hire the farmer to haul them for me mm-hmm. if he's close enough, right? If he's willing, I'll, I'll pay an extra five bucks or whatever it is to, um, for the feed. And then I'll get him to haul bales all winter long, right? He's mm-hmm. usually got nothing else to do in the winter. And then we'll do that same idea that, uh, I explained at the beginning where I have multiple paddocks already built, right? The fences are already built. So depending on the size of his trailer or truck or whatever he's hauling with, we'll put a load or maybe two loads in paddock one and a load in paddock two and a load in paddock three and paddock four. Um, and he unloads them and spreads them for me. Mm-hmm. So this will be, you know, early in the winter we he sets them out there and then I'll set them on their end so that I can walk around them to pull twine off easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And then all all I do, I never touch the bales. We talked about yardage, how it costs you every time you touch a bale. Well, I never touched these bales with a piece of equipment. He did. Mm -hmm. And I paid probably about the same amount to him as I would the trucker to haul them in and dump them. And then I've got to spread them. Right. So he sets them up. And I let's say I put five days worth of feed in a a paddock. Just picking a number here for fun. Um, And I've got six paddocks full. Right. We've got quite a few, quite a few days of feeding out there. When I get down to my last paddock, I got five days ahead of me. I'll phone the farmer up and say, Okay, we're just about out. Do you want to fill the paddocks up again? And at his convenience, you know, when the weather's nice, preferably he's got five days of leeway, mm-hmm. he'll start hauling and fill those paddocks. And then he'll just go a little bit further, right? He'll move the bales the next set. You can see where they were, right? They've cleaned mm-hmm. them up mm-hmm. um, a little bit further and a little bit further. Every time he fills a paddock, he just puts the bales in a different spot. And that's been my lowest yardage by far. Mm-hmm. All I do is, you know, walk out there and pull twine and then I open gates once in a while. So And, and make a phone call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Like, and yeah. he's happy because he got an extra five bucks a bail. Um, he's got probably not that much to do in the winter and it's an outing for him more, mm-hmm. more or less. And it's worked really well. But they, I mean, your neighbor has to be close by and and you obviously have to have good relationships with him and and be able to make that work.
1: Yeah. And they've got to be the one who likes to drive the tractor all the time. And a lot of them do, right? So (laughs) All all
2: farmers love driving their tractor in the winter, right? Uh, exactly. Front wheel assist. Look at me going through the beach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't have to fight with it.
1: Nice.
2: Uh, So And then the other way, like you you said, where you strip graze across it, um, that's got to be kind of set up in advance. What I've found, everybody wants to know, you know, how far apart you put your bales. That's usually my second most common question. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to go 25 to 30 feet apart between mm-hmm. the bales. But what I've found over the years is I, I go double that between the rows. Okay, so I double that space. So it's, okay. it's you know 50 feet apart maybe. Mm-hmm. What happens though, that leaves a strip, right? In the spring, when you're all done, you've got these strips where there's heavy fertilizer and then there's this gap where there's none. Uh I just bale graze the same field two years in a row. An offset. The next year I go in between where they, where we didn't have bales. The reason I do that is because it gets too tight on your electric fence. Right um we we have trouble getting power in a fence you know in the in the dead of winter when there's so much snow on the ground and that it works as an insulator somebody's going to get pushed through the fence not you know maybe they respect it but somebody's going to bump it or they're going to knock a bale over to it there's just not enough space in between so i just do every second row and then on year two i i bale graze in between and, and then i get that good coverage of of residue and and uh for water holding capacity and and fertility and things like that
1: that's a great idea and a great tip and, we, and we've both done uh, posts in the ground the same way that we do with with uh grazing stockpile but also used longer fiberglass posts uh that are may be five feet long with a, a short clip and drop the wire in there and then we can push it straight into the uh, straight into the bale depending on the bale we can even tap it into the bale with a mallet if necessary and that keeps them far enough as long as we found that as long as your post is long enough that they can't reach under and get the bale, if they start reaching under and they can reach the bale, then that's when you start to have problems with them going through. And I guess the other the other thing I've learned there is we here we always try to have out a second break fence, because if you just have one fence out in front of the cows and they go through it, they're in the whole field of bales and you've got a, a bit more work on your hands to get them out of there. Um, we, we always have at least a second fence and, and a lot of times we'll go and set up multiple fences when it's nicer out and then just take them down and then set them up at our, when we have time, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I've done, you know, put, put the posts in the bales before too, but again, um, just like you said, it just tempts them to reach under the fence, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're only, you know, if you've got a five foot post, you've got to have it in two feet. That's only three mm-hmm. feet away and boy, it's pretty tempting and the problem, you don't have much power in the winter. Right. The one thing that I've done uh, that I really like about uh, that winter electric fence is I've switched to a bipolar fencer. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the the downside to that is you need to run two wires. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the, the plus side is, boy, it's got good control. So what the bipolar fencer does is actually runs half of the power of the fencer out through the hot wire as a positive charge. And then it runs half of the power of the fencer through a negative wire as a negative charge mm-hmm. so what happens is doesn't matter which wire they hit they get a, sh- a shock about half power so there is a little bit of a shock in there if they were to bump both of them together they get the full shock and right. this eliminates the need for ground as your your mechanism to get that power back to the fencer right it takes the ground right out of it so
1: And and if you were to do the same thing, except if you have hots and grounds on your exterior fencing, but you were to just do the same thing as you're saying with a hot and a ground. If the animal touches the ground wire, they're not going to get shocked. Whereas if you run it as a bipolar, they'll get a shock from either wire and the full shock from both. Yes, you bet. Yeah. Right. So briefly before we get to you know i want to imagine a time when the winter ends because here we are it's it's actually dumping more snow on us here i can look out the window and it won't stop but uh so i want to imagine spring but first i want to talk a little bit about maybe even before going into winter a lot of farmers uh all around right now we're struggling with I mean, the feed costs you mentioned, we're, we're, we can see right now conventional hay prices from four to $600 per ton right now in D.C., um, way higher than in previous years. Uh, drought-related feed shortages, flood damage, fire-related feed shortages. So can you talk a little bit about looking out at the winter ahead of you and uh, addressing that kind of issue of, of do I get more feed? do I pay that out the nose for that maintain my herd or do I destock and and, and how do you it's a tricky decision especially with cattle prices low how, how do you recommend people look at that financial decision
2: I guess my first comment on that is you cannot plan for a drought in a drought mm-hmm. you're way too late mm-hmm. um, we have to be planning for the for the next drought every year um, and and that goes from both sides You're, you're Grass management and your feeding management. Um, do you already have that plan in place? Mm-hmm. What if we're going to get a big, a big drought? Uh, I know lots of guys always have two years' supply of hay on hand, right? Mm-hmm. Can you get to that point? I mean, sometimes you can't because you're, you know, it's a cash flow issue. Um, but from the forage side too, every year I'm planning for a drought. On that best year, um, I'm planning for a drought. I'm building water holding capacity. Um, I, I've got an example from this summer actually. Um, I did just posted it on my Facebook page here a little while ago. Um, We have two different pastures. I'll do the quick version of it for you here. Two different pastures. One's the old one. One's the new one. Okay. So we've had one for uh, on average, about 20 years. We've been managing that one pasture and the other one, um, the majority of it, we've only had for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some, you know, some other mostly bush pasture that we've had longer, but the majority of the open land we've only had for three years. So we had two years of really wet, uh, 2019 and, uh, 2020, both really wet years, lots of moisture, lots of production. And now this last season, 2021 was a severe drought. Now severe drought mm-hmm. for us, um, on average, we normally get 15 inches of rainfall in a growing season. This year we were under four. Oof, yeah. yeah. Um, like it's pretty severe drought. Now that pasture that we've been managing for 20 years that we've been planning for a drought for 20 years, we've been building water, holding capacity. We've been leaving residue. We've got that soil armor in place, um, compared to the average of the previous two years, which were really wet, we still got 94% of our yield harvested off on the drought year. Wow. 94% on the one that we've only had for three years, uh, we were at 62%. Yeah. Um, Right. So we've got two pieces of land. Um, They're about 10 miles apart, Mm -hmm. but the rain was the same. Right. I mean, I I don't have rain gauges at both of them, but we were dry (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and the other two years we were super wet everywhere. Um, So we've got two pieces of land virtually side by side. I mean, in the same area, same environment, same situation. Um, One was in a drought and one wasn't. Right. Right, it's just because we were pre-planning for it. So mm-hmm. it's too late to plan for a drought when you're in a drought. You have to be planning way in advance, and it takes time, right? To fix the water cycle, it takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, same with your winter management. Okay, have you been managing your haylands, your cropland, your silage land, whatever? Have you been building water holding capacity? Yet? Right, guys who have been doing that and taking care of that land and building it up, and maybe um, you know. Uh, they are sitting with more hay than guys that aren't mm-hmm. right because they've been managing for that that water holding capacity is so important on all your land not just on your on your pasture land
1: mm-hmm yeah so and that's that's just that uh continually you know shifting your focus to think about the soil health as the foundation of your farming um and getting your head out of all those all the things we're, we're typically thinking about and and getting right down there to the base of it and working to support that in your in your farming or ranching and grazing practices
2: yeah for sure um water to me is the most important nutrient mm-hmm. right before i ever spend any money on any other nutrient like Everybody who's buying (laughs) nitrogen fertilizer and phosphorus and all that stuff, um, I want to build my water holding capacity. My Mm -hmm. number one priority is to to build, uh, you know, to hold onto water. If if you had a soil test report that came back and it said for you know X number of tons of forage produced, you need to add fifty pounds per acre of nitrogen fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that's the the scenario. That's what it's calling for. Equivalent to that 50 pounds of nitrogen needed to grow, uh, you need about 10,000 pounds of water. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> right, like what's the most limiting nutrient? Right. Water, water, right. water, water.
1: Right. And the other ones don't do you much good if, uh, if you don't have the capacity to hold onto the water when it hits the field and, and protect it when it's there and utilize it.
2: Oh, exactly. So hmm. my concern or what, what I would do on my farm instead of buying, you know, fertilizer. I would buy carbon, mm-hmm. right? How do I get carbon added to my soil? That's where the bale grazing comes in, right? right? I'm, I'm buying carbon, you know, the nutrients from somebody else's field who wants to sell it. And I'm gonna put it out on my land and add that water holding capacity, right? I'm gonna bring in carbon, not nitrogen because the soil balances out. It's got a carbon nitrogen ratio is usually it's trying to balance out uh, you know, about 24 to one. Mm-hmm. So the more carbon you get in your land, It balances out and gets you more nitrogen.
0: Right.
2: Right. If you drain all the carbon out of your land by harvesting it off year after year after year and, you know, tillage and, and, uh, you know, overgrazing and and removing all that, well, then your nitrogen is going to go down because it's going to balance off of that 24 to 1. Mm -hmm. So um, if I'm going to spend money on something, it's it's carbon. Uh, A couple of years I've bought hay or I've bought old straw that was cheap, like especially on that, that really wet year when everything got rained on and, you know, maybe the hay's terrible quality, but it's really cheap. Heck, that's the year I want to bale grease. I'm going to buy mm-hmm. as much of it as I can get it out, um, put it on the Hills, put it out, you know, where, where it really needs it. Uh, a few years ago, I had, I don't know, 60 or 70 old organic straw bales that I got for free. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I just threw them out in the middle of the summer all, out on my Hills. hmm cows didn't eat them like they they, you know how cows would be with a bale sitting out there they play around with it and knock mm-hmm. it over and
1: move it around for you a little bit they were
2: they were kind of you know the outsides were very weathered
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: there was parts that you know the bottoms were all rotten and and but they just knocked them around and and played with them and you know those hills grow just as good as the bottom land now oh yeah yeah so i'm adding carbon
1: no, that's a really good point so start thinking about it well in advance and soften the impacts on your operation that way as well so we have a little bit more time here i want to i want to get into that optimistic thought as i watch the snow dump down outside my window here that uh, spring will come and can you tell us a little bit about how when you look out over your perennial pasture and you mentioned uh the neighbor who gets out there as soon as something turns a little bit green and the setback that can cause. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about spring turnout when you try to get out there in the fields and what does that early season uh, grazing look like at your place?
2: Okay. Well, that'll, that'll depend on the year, of course, but um, I also get out fairly early compared mm-hmm. to most, uh, mm-hmm. but I do it in a regenerative grazing fashion mm-hmm. okay, to, to turn your animals on onto a field and leave them sit there for the month of April you're going to be doing some damage mm-hmm. but if i start with some stockpiled grass right i got a bunch of residue out there from last year and the green grass is starting to kick through um, and we start grazing early but we're doing it you know moving moving them every day or two well they're mm-hmm. going to go out there and nibble some of that green grass but they're going to have mouthfuls of that residue as well to balance it off and we're going to start grazing but we're only out there for a day or two mm-hmm. and then we're onto the next paddock and the next paddock if we just, you know, hit those really quick and then get off of them, it can actually stimulate more growth or right? picture one tiller, you know, one, one, little blade of grass coming up, um, the, uh, the, the livestock go out there and they nip that off. The plant says, Hey, we just got to stress. And it's actually might, it might trigger two tillers to come up after that. Mm-hmm. Right. And your, your sward will actually thicken a little bit. So it's, 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 a matter of managing that grass early in the season not necessarily not being on it
1: mm-hmm. yeah and we get out we we that looks like for us uh fast moves and big paddocks uh during that period of time and and the uh starting with those fields that still have the most residual left uh, including maybe somewhere where the the snow Uh, prevented you from getting the utilization that that you would have gotten somewhere you grazed in the fall Um, that also helps to reduce the the sort of green fire hose effect coming out the back of the cow on those lush early spring pastures and and balance out their their diet a little bit
2: yeah you bet Um, it's nice if you if you can to save a couple of paddocks for that spring spring turnout for sure Uh, some years you can't i mean this year i think we've got one pasture out of five that we have two paddocks that we definitely are stockpiled, mm-hmm. um, for, for springtime, but because of the drought, the other ones, it will have some residue out there, but we grazed every paddock in the fall. Usually I save one or two for the spring, but, um, you know, a drought is a drought and we, mm-hmm. we adjust, I always talk about, uh, you know, managing for plan A mm-hmm. and sometimes we get to plan, you know, W yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if things change and, and we need to be flexible, we need to be able to adjust.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's been a key. I think that's been a key uh, uh, message in the conversation is that flexibility and, and how to adapt as your situation changes and adapting in time. So we'll wrap it up here. The I, I can't wait to get you out uh, to one of our events out here in BC and have you speak in person. And, and uh, in addition to your, your um, custom grazing and your hogs you your other farming out in, in Busby but you're also, as I mentioned educator, speaker, writer and you've done so much to spread information about regenerative livestock production techniques. I mean recently I just I, I'm seeing you everywhere and spreading that uh, spreading those techniques so that farmers can improve their practices. So how can our listens, uh, our listeners learn more about your work? Um, how can they find schools that you're, you're going to be at, to, or even engage you for any sort of consulting? Could you talk a little bit about how they could find out more?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I, am not doing this for any other reason than I think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the direction our agriculture needs to go. And that's, that's my passion right now is, is spreading this. So, um, my most common or, or best method right now of getting the information out, is probably my Facebook page. Um, mm-hmm. I've tried some of the other social media and, and uh, yeah, it gets frustrating because there's so many out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was advised to uh, do one and stick to it in, until you can, uh, you know, do, do them all well. Right. So yeah, my Facebook page is my most, uh, most used one. We have a YouTube uh, channel as well. I think we're working on, and I think my wife has an Instagram for the company, but I've never even seen it. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely Facebook. Um, we we post on there all the time about our events and our our schools that are coming up. So that would be the the best way to get a hold of that.
1: And I understand you've also got a bit of a networking event that you do.
2: Yeah, we started the Wednesday night networking up last winter because um, COVID hit so hard, and I realized in the you know at the beginning of that season. That we're gonna lose our networking. Because mm-hmm. probably, you know, half my education has been from networking at or after conferences. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you meet up with a couple of people that are just got some great ideas and you, you, you know, sit around the coffee pot or around the dinner table after the conference, and and that networking is so valuable. And because of COVID that canceled all of our conferences last winter, mm-hmm. we weren't gonna have the networking. So we decided, you know what? We're not going to do webinars. We're not going to do conferences online. What we want to do is just the networking. Right. So we decided to uh, start this and, you know, I was going to do it with, I offered it to the Gateway Research Organization and they jumped all over it. They thought it was a great idea. And then they said, well, why don't we hire or, you know, bring in guest speakers as well? I'm like, okay, that sounds like a mm-hmm. great idea. That's going to be even better. So we've partnered with them. And every, um, this winter we switched every second Wednesday because it was a lot, it, it is a lot of time consuming, uh, uh, for me and I just volunteer my time. I'm there's, I, I'm not getting paid for any of that, mm-hmm. but we do every second Wednesday, we bring in a different guest and we pick a different topic and we basically run it as a Q and A. Okay. Just. Just, uh, um, you know, our, our guest speaker gets to pick the topic. And if we go off topic, that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And we have usually between 75 and 250 per, uh, participants every Wednesday.
1: Wow. Um,
2: it, like it, it really grew way more than I thought it would. And it's just a QA questions. Um, it runs for about an hour and a half. And when it's over, we leave the site open and everybody can just chit chat. And I mean, <laughs> last or this past week when we, we, uh, had it open I, I think there were still people on on there at 11 o'clock at night
1: wow okay just
2: networking so
1: yeah so it sounds like you've really you've taken I think what we all think is the best part of every conference those hallway conversations those uh, after the talk chats and all of that and you've managed to take that online
2: yeah you bet and it it was way more successful than I ever thought like I was thinking you know if we got 20 people on there that would be good and yeah. you know, you know the, the night we had 250 I was blown away I mean we just, the, the numbers of emails we were getting, we had to up our Zoom account. Like, wow. we weren't going to be able to take everybody. We're like, wow, this is a, this is needed.
1: Need to get a bigger room. Yeah, perfect.
2: Yeah. And uh, by the way, just to let you know, Tristan, I'm actually uh, 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 an old-time BC boy myself. I okay. uh, went to high school in the Okanagan, so.
1: Okay. All right, there you go. So when we get you back over here, uh, you're coming back to the original stomping grounds.
2: Yeah, you bet. You bet. I went to high school out there, graduated from high school in, in BC. So
1: great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I think everyone's going to get a lot out of this and there's, there's obviously so much more we could talk about, but we'll have to save it for another day. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your day today, the time that you've probably freed up by having some bale grazing set up and and (laughs) likewise over here. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Thank you, Steve. Awesome. Thanks, Tristan. God bless.
0: Right. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you, Steve. That was a great conversation. Organicbc.org slash conference is where you can go and find out more about other aspects of this conference or pick up tickets if you haven't done that already. There's not much more to say, so we'll finish things off with my four-year-old son, Levon, reciting clauses from the Canadian Organic Standards General Principles and Management document. 8.2.4.6. Fit cleaning, sanitation, and disinfection
2: requirements in clause 7 of this standard supersede those specified in 8.2.